Well, if you've ever had a chance to travel, um, typically, you know, when you travel, there's maps and there's books that you read and books that you research and you become at least vaguely familiar with where you're going, whether you're traveling somewhere in the country or traveling outside of the country. And typically every city that you go to, you will find there's some kind of pattern for getting around. There's, if, for instance, if you come to South Florida, you realize that we, you know, our streets and our avenues are divided into a grid system. You slowly begin to realize what's northeast and northwest and southwest and southeast. You begin to know, kind of, if I go above this road, I'm going to be north, and I go below this road, I'm going to be south, and it's kind of like one big box here in, in South Florida, and you begin to maneuver and get yourself around. And But you go to some cities, and there's uh, roads that go out from a certain part of the city, a, 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 a center city, a, a part within the city. Typically, when you travel to Europe, for instance, there's cities all throughout Europe that have a central location where all roads go from there. Well, if you ever had the opportunity to go to Paris, you'll know that in Paris there is a monument called the Arc de Triomphe. And we have a picture of it here on the screens. But if you notice, the Arc de Triomphe is a centerpiece for the city of Paris. And you notice that every main street in the city of Paris all leads to the Arc de Triomphe. When the Arc de Triomphe was being built by Napoleon, he wanted people to know this is that this Arc de Triomphe was the centerpiece for Parisian culture. This, this Arc de Triomphe would be the centerpiece for French culture. That everybody would always know that because of the people that have fought and gone before us, that he wanted to build a monument to honor those people that fought for freedom, honored people that fought in the wars on behalf of France. And he wanted to build a monument, the Arc de Triomphe, that would forever be remembered as the centerpiece for all French culture and civilization. Napoleon was quoted as saying, everyone that comes home, every Frenchman that comes home, must pass through the Arc de Triomphe. And he put the Arc de Triomphe strategically in the center and had all roads go out and all roads come in so that they would eventually realize the centerpiece of our culture and civilization is the Arc de Triomphe. Why in the world am I talking about this? It's because in the same way, when we say that the gospel is center, that the gospel is central to a church and to your life, what we are saying is there is not one road or avenue of your life that can be disconnected from the power of the gospel. That for the gospel to truly be good news and for us to understand the power, the far-reaching power of the gospel, it has to affect every facet of your life. It has to affect your relationships. It has to affect your marriages. It has to affect the way you raise your kids. It has to affect the way you spend your money. It has to affect the way that you respond to God and His Word. It has to affect the way that you see church and other people. It has to affect the way when you walk out of these doors this morning, it, how you view brokenness and sin and the darkness all throughout South Florida it affects every facet of your life that's what it means to be gospel-centered 
To be gospel-centered in your life, to be gospel-centered as a church means there is one message that will define this church. See, the reality is for everyone, there is something that is central. You have centered your life on something. So if it's not the gospel, your life will quickly be centered on some message or something that will get all of your attention, that will influence the way you think, will influence the way you live. And what we are claiming and stating in our vision is that we pray that until Jesus returns, that Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church will be centered upon one thing and one thing alone. And that is the gospel message that tells us that God saves sinners through the work of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ alone. That is what will animate our vision. That is what will animate our lives. That is what our life will be centered upon, every area of your life, from top to bottom, from the inside out, centered around the gospel. And I want us to look at this story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, for us to think about for a few minutes this morning, how was the gospel central to this woman, this Samaritan woman. Well, for the Samaritan woman, she, right off the bat, when we see the word Samaritan, or we see the name Samaria, we have to understand where is Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And about 700 years before Christ, Assyria comes in to the northern kingdom of Israel and into Samaria, and the, the Gentile pagan Assyrians wipe it clean. They take all of the Israelites out and they hold them in captivity, and they replace them with all of the colonies of the Gentiles. And so all of these Gentiles begin to come in to Samaria. And they bring with them their pagan gods and their pagan idols. And what they begin to do is they begin to intermarry with some of the remaining Israelites. And so after the captivity, when all of the Israelites can return to the northern kingdom of Israel, when all of the Israelites return to Samaria, what's there? The remnants of the, this pagan religion, the, the remnants of the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that. And so right off the bat, there was a cultural divide between the Jews that believed that they were pure and that they were the holy ones and that they were the ones that were never defiled. There was a cultural and religious divide between the, the Jews, the Israelites, and the Samaritans to the north. So right off the bat, when we see a Samaritan woman, we know red flags go up. This wasn't a place where Jews would typically walk through. This was a place that they would typically avoid. And so when we see Jesus walking through Samaria, we know something is about to happen that is profound. And not only do we see this cultural divide here in John chapter 4, but we also have to understand that this is a patriarchal culture. Men didn't talk to women. Women were, were, were the low, low person on the totem pole. They were a social outcast. And so not only do we see here Jesus, a Jew, talking to a defiled Gentile Samaritan, but we also see him talking to a woman. And so what Jesus is doing here, we have to understand, is he, he is breaking barriers. He is breaking cultural barriers, and he is breaking social barriers, and he is breaking religious barriers. Once again, something is about to happen. And Jesus encounters this woman 
at the heat of day, at noon. If you understood the ancient culture, nobody came out at noon to get water. Nobody came at the heat of day. You always came at the very beginning of the day when it was cool to get water. The only time you would go at the heat of day is if you wanted to avoid people. We understand by the story that we just read about the Samaritan woman, why she would want to avoid. See, not only is this a woman, not only is this a Samaritan woman, this is a woman that has a scandalous past. And so this looks like on the surface a recipe for disaster. This is the place where religious people don't go. It's almost like you could see the disciples going, Jesus, no, this is disaster. This is a PR nightmare for you. Not Samaria, not a woman, especially that woman. Stay away. She's a woman of scandal. The reason she comes at the heat of the day is that everybody would avoid her. She didn't want to be seen. She's on the bottom of the social ladder. She is the least of the Samaritans. But Jesus reaches through every barrier, social, cultural, religious, and extends grace to this woman. And so the first thing that we see here in John chapter 4, we see here in verse 13 through 15, we see the gospel, point one, the gospel's power to answer the problem of sin and shame. The first way we see the gospel at work is we see the gospel's power to answer the problem of sin and shame. In verse 13 through 15, uh, Jesus and this woman are engaged, and in verse 13 he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, is going to be thirsty. But anybody who drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. You see, thirst all throughout the Bible and water all throughout the Bible was often synonymous with something much more deeper and something much more spiritual and something much more symbolic than what you see at the surface. Jesus wasn't talking about physical water. He was saying, no, 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 no. You're coming here because you think all you need is a drink of cool water. But you need something that goes much deeper. You see, your thirst is not just a physical thirst. Your thirst is something that is deeply emotional and spiritual. You see, what Jesus was encountering with the woman is he was saying that you are thirsty, really thirsty. And there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy this thirst. See, the reality this morning is every single person in this room was born thirsty. You were born with a longing for something to quench that thirst, a void in your life because of sin that disconnects you from God. And we spend our entire lives going from well to well to well, whether it's the well of a relationship, whether it's the well of success, whether it's the well of our career, whether it's the well of of fame and approval and affirmation, whether it's the well of trying to make a name for ourselves, whatever it is, every single person in this room this morning has a well that you go to again and again and again and again because there is a deep longing in your soul for something to quench that thirst. This woman was thirsty. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need water that leads to eternal life. You have, you don't need a cool drink of water from this well. You need water that satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. You need water that will make you clean. You need water that will make you whole. 
You need eternal life that can only come from me because what you ultimately long for is you long to be forgiven. And Jesus deals with this idea of sin for this woman as he goes into verse 16 and he, and, and, and he kind of has this interesting encounter with her, this exchange, and he says, go call your husband as if he doesn't know what's really going on in this woman's life. And she goes, well, he's not my husband. And she, he goes, no, you're right. You've had five husbands and even the man you're with now is not your husband. And so what's so profound about that statement is that Jesus gives her living water and he already knows about her past. Isn't that salvation? Jesus comes into our life, knows our past, knows our, our deepest, darkest past and our secrets and those things that nobody knows about us. And he comes into our life, crossing every barrier possible, the barriers of our sin and our shame. And he comes right in and he says, I want to give you living water. He knows her past. He knows about her relational disaster. He knows about her scandalous past. And he still goes in and he says, drink so that you might live and live for the first time. You see, the gospel, when Jesus offers eternal life, when he offers that life-giving water, he comes in and he crosses that barrier of sin and shame. His water leads to eternal life. It's the offer of salvation for her. And only the gospel, only that good news from Jesus has the power to do that. And only has the power this morning to do that for you. So that you might know that yes, through Jesus, you can have life. That your sins can be forgiven. And that your shame can be taken care of. Because of Jesus and his work through the gospel. But not only do we see the gospel's power to break sin and shame in our life and offer true forgiveness through the living water, but the second thing that we see here is the gospel has the power to change the desires of our heart. And we see this in verse 27. What does it say? Just when his disciples came back, they marveled at the Jesus is talking to this woman, this Samaritan woman with a scandalous past. Why are you talking to her? And so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Profound. The gospel not only has the power to deal with your sin and shame, the gospel not only has the power to offer forgiveness, but what do we see here? The woman leaves her water jar. And I think this is fascinating. Track with me for one second. All of the commentators are in agreement about this, that this woman lived her life between two objects, the well and her home. And more than likely, the reason she came at the heat of day is that was the only time she could come out of her home where she would never be seen and exposed. And she probably, think about this life, think about this life. So entangled in sin, so entangled in scandal, hiding from God, hiding from the world, she lived her life between the well and her house. And that was probably her entire day. Run out of the house when nobody would see me and go back. 
Run to the well and come back. Run to the well and come back. Run to the well and come back. Because it was at the well where she would find what she thought would be the water that would quench her thirst. And it was at home where she would find what? Love. She thought she would find a husband there that would love her for who she is. So she goes back and forth from the well to the house, from the well to the house, from the well to the house. But what happens here when she encounters the gospel? What does it say? Don't miss this. Verse 27, John puts this in here for a reason. She leaves and drops the water jar. And instead of going home, she goes out into the city. They probably haven't seen her for years. And says, you've got to see this man who knew me and loved me for who I was. It's redemption. It's a changed heart. It's changed desires. Leave the gospel when you really encounter the gospel and it sinks in what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It changes your desires, it should change your values, it should change your obedience, it should change everything in your life, that the things that I used to run to, the well and my house, I, not only, I no longer desire. Because this thing doesn't really quench my thirst and this thing doesn't really offer love. But so entangled in sin and so entangled in scandal, she couldn't see it until that gospel came into her life. And my question for you this morning, if the gospel is, does not have the power to change your heart and your affections and your desires and your values, if you do not begin to see real life change in your life, how powerful is that gospel? Are you really, is the gospel really gripping your heart and your mind? If you slowly don't see in your life this, this change, that you don't see God's sanctifying gospel power in your heart and your life, where you begin to say, no, there is nothing more beautiful, there's nothing that tastes sweeter than the living water that God gives me. If you are resisting the water of eternal life, then you haven't tasted its sweetness and have not experienced its beauty. See, when you have that sip, you are a dying person taking a sip of water. You don't go, I don't want it, uh, that, that's okay, I'll just take a sip. You're like, give me more, more, more of Jesus, more of his word, more of him. It changes your hearts, it changes your desires, it changes everything. You leave the water jar behind and you run to Jesus who gives you life. See, this woman had a new identity. This woman was only known as the woman with five husbands. This woman was only known as the, the woman with five husbands and the man she's living with now is not even her husband. But you know what she's known as now? Church history tells us that she becomes the first missionary to the Samaritans. Talk about a change of purpose. Talk about a change of affections. Talk about a change of identity. She's no longer known as the scandalous woman. She's known as the woman that was changed forever by the gospel and takes the gospel out to the Samaritans. New identity. The third and last thing that we see here is not only the gospel's power to offer forgiveness and to take care of the power of sin and shame in our life, not only do we see the gospel's power to change the affections and desires and values of our heart, but the last thing that we see here is the gospel's power to meet our deepest need to be loved. 
And we see this in verse 6 and 12, something very peculiar. In verse 6 and 12, and in 5, verse 5, 6, and 12, a man by the name of Jacob is mentioned. Verse 5, it says this, this scene, this incident between Jesus and the Samaritan woman happens near the field of Jacob. And then in verse 6, we're told that, that Jesus literally meets this woman at Jacob's well. And then verse 12, it then again says, has this incredible question where she looks at Jesus and she says, are you greater than Jacob? Now, if you don't know Jacob, that's okay. Jacob's this guy in the Old Testament. He's what we know as a, known as a patriarch. And, and Jacob had many sons. But before he had children, he, in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob meets a woman. Where? At a well. There's a reason John included this in John 4, this idea of Jacob and the well. And Jacob, in chapter 29 of Genesis, meets this woman by the name of Rachel. And according to Genesis, she is absolutely stunning. And he falls in love. And he goes to Rachel's father and he says, I want that woman. She is absolutely stunning. She is absolutely beautiful. But Rachel's father eventually comes back and he says, according to your tradition, I can't give you... I can't give you Rachel, she's the youngest. I need to give you my other daughter, she's the oldest. Let me introduce you to, to Leah. And he looks at Leah and he's not too thrilled. In Genesis chapter 29, it, it says that she doesn't look as beautiful as Rachel, and so he, he begrudgingly marries her, he, he deals with Leah, he, 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 you know, and, 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 but all the while, he has his eyes set on the on Rachel, the woman he met at the well, the beautiful woman. But the tragedy in Genesis chapter 29 and moving forward is Leah is eventually rejected by Jacob and passed over for the more beautiful woman. Why do I mention that? Because when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? She has no clue what she's asking. You see, Jacob chose the beautiful woman and rejected the woman of lesser beauty at the well. Jesus meets the woman of lesser beauty and doesn't reject her, but says, I will forever change you by my love and make you my beautiful bride. The gospel, and the gospel alone, meets that longing of your heart, whether you realize it or not this morning, to be loved in a way that you've never been loved before. Your greatest fear in life is to be known and rejected. Jesus says, I know you, I know everything about you, and I love you. I love you, to be fully known, but to be fully loved. It sounds like heaven, it sounds like heaven. And I leave you with this this morning. How in the world is this possible? For the woman to not be rejected because of her past, 
but to be fully known and to be fully loved at the same time by Jesus. There's only one answer. Somebody had to be rejected. And Jesus said, I will be the one that is rejected. I will be the one that takes on your sin and your shame and transform you into my beautiful bride. There's this incredible story of two soldiers in communist China. And during the communist movement in China, these two young soldiers were running through the streets and they were ransacking churches. And this one church these two communist soldiers go into, they, uh, they, they run through the doors and the, the pastor hides behind, underneath the pew. And one of the young pastors points to the wall and it's an image of Jesus hanging on the cross. And the other soldier goes, who is that? And the other soldier says, that's their king. And the other soldier asks a very appropriate question. He says, what kind of king dies? Coral Ridge, that is our king. We have a king that was rejected so that we could be accepted. We have a king that has died so that we might live. We have a king that experienced cosmic thirst on the cross so that we would never be thirsty again. And it is my prayer, and I would ask you for it to be your prayer as well, that Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church would be forever marked as a church that preaches this message that there is one power and only one power that has the power and authority to change the human heart forever. And my prayer is that Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, that we would leave from this place and go out into our neighborhoods and into our communities because there are people out there that are thirsty and need to hear this message. May we be like the Samaritan woman and go out and say, you've got to come. You've got to come and see and savor this one who knows you, who knows everything about you, and loves you. Let's go out. Let's go out and tell people about this Jesus and see lives throughout South Florida forever changed because of the work that God is doing here at Coral Ridge. Let's pray.